After a four-week hiatus, the Ultimate Fighting Championship returns to action with a Fight Night card headlined by a very appealing featherweight contenders match. Yet this weekend's card feels more momentous than simply flipping the sign in the shop window from closed to open. For the first time since March 2019, there will be live spectators at a UFC event as the promotion moved its Fight Island operations from Flash Forum to the 18,000-seat Etihad Arena, then sold approximately 2,000 tickets under a set of safety protocols, seats that were devoured like a ham thrown into a piranha tank. This Saturday will also mark the beginning of the UFC's venture with new broadcast partner ABC, a major move that the promotion announced surprisingly quietly last month. Combine those two milestones with the return of a top 10 welterweight contender from a two-year hiatus, and there are enough storylines around this card to make it feel like just a bit more than back to business. Good evening and welcome to the SureDog Radio Network preview for UFC on ABC1, Holloway versus Cater. I'm your host, Ben Duffy from SureDog.com, and with me is Keith Schillen, executive producer of the Loudmouth MMA Podcast Network, as well as a writer for SureDog.com, and a host and creator of numerous shows for SureDog Radio, including the Schillen and Duffy Show. Keith, how are you this evening? Dude, I'm, I'm excellent. I'm excited. It's the new year. The, we're starting off doing the predictions for all the shows right out the bat. Last year, we started much later. Uh, we started doing just the pay-per-views. Now, you know, at the end of the year, we kind of started throwing in fight nights. Now we're doing them all. I'm excited. And what I'm really excited is what you said right before the broadcast. You said new year. You said that you're undefeated right now and you won't get a fight wrong the entire year. That's what you said, right? That is exactly correct. I am going to go 100% this year on all 450 or 500 fights the UFC puts on. That's exactly right. Starting starting right now. I mean, before we even dig into the fights, there's a lot of news around this. The UFC announced that it was going to partner with ABC. I'm pretty sure it was in December. Oh, I mean, yeah. It, that would have been such a huge storyline if it wasn't, you know, officially announced in that like gap of not having events. That would have been a major, major storyline. I mean, people get away from MMA a lot at this time period. They're, you know, they have obligations. Now, obviously, this year is a little different than most years, but you still have some people had travel and different things around the holidays, and a lot of you just want to take that break. But that's a major, major storyline. That you not only do you have a partnership with a network television, but it's ABC. I think that's that's the one that's owned by Disney, right? Pretty sure. Yeah. So I mean, you have a you know there was. I keep going back to when we were watching when we first started when there was a time that MMA was banned from TV, and now you're doing the other extreme where you're on the network that's owned by Disney. I mean, it's fantastic. It is. Uh, the other big piece of news. There are going to be fans in the stands. Dana White famously said last year that he wasn't going to do any half-full arenas. He's either coming back all the way or not at all. That ended up not being the case. Uh, you know, there's going to be about 2,000 people in the stands at an 18,000-seat arena. I mean, how how do you feel about this? What are, you, what are your thoughts on the return of fans to UFC events? Yeah, so I, I feel a lot of things now. We try not to touch politics. I'm not touching politics. So if it comes off as being political, I'm not trying to be. Dana says things. Sometimes I think to get a rise out of people. Sometimes to be confident. But when you say, I'm not coming back until we can sell at arenas, he really wanted to be the first 
major sport that can pack up an arena. And unfortunately, unless he's doing it internationally, and I'm not talking Europe, some some other areas of the world, that's probably not going to happen. Someone else is going to beat him to it just based on uh, the way the state of America, you know, the country of America is right now. And in and, and Europe, I don't think that's going to happen. But when you've seen other major sports events, like I know the Buffalo Bills had a playoff game the other day and they had they had fans in the arena. I think there might have been one or two other playoff games that actually had fans in the arena. You had to know that the UFC was going to follow that. I mean, they were the trendsetter to start with returning to some from COVID. How were they not going to at least put some people in the arena? Whether that's good, whether that's bad, I'm going to let the listener decide on that. But, Yeah. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. And it's just last month uh, here in Texas that uh, Canelo Alvarez fought Callum Smith in a full Alamo Dome, 15,000 people there. And obviously Dana White has had a love-hate relationship with boxing since before he was even involved with the UFC. You know, he came from boxing. I still think to this day he would rather have been a boxing promoter uh, if the cards had played out that way. But I know that he saw that. And I'm sure that also helped spur him to action. Yeah. So I'm not a boxing person. I didn't even know that happened. So I think everything I said was completely wrong when I said he's going to go outside of the USA. I didn't, I didn't know that. So hearing that news, my first surprise is why isn't the UFC having a card in Texas <laughs> where I guess that's allowed? I, I'm not saying I support them having a card there. I'm not saying I don't. I'm just surprised with Dana who doesn't care what, he doesn't care about backlash. That's one thing we can say. Uh, you know, he had to be had to, when it started hurting the money. When you know Disney called him and said, "Hey, don't have an, an event when everyone else is telling you not to." That's when he stops. As far and, as me and your me and your opinion, he don't care. And I think it's the very same case here. I I think if he had tried to put on a full arena event here in Texas either Endeavor or Disney or somebody would have stepped up and said, no, this is this is too much liability. This is too tone deaf from a, a PR standpoint. Sure. So what what was the – was there backlash in the boxing? I, I follow boxing like very limited, like not at all. <laughs> like if there's a huge, huge – I might watch one boxing match a year. Yeah, there was, there was some pushback on it because San Antonio was not in a particularly good place as far as, you know – in, uh, infection rates went when they did it and then they put 15,000 people into the stands with no distancing. I mean, that's more tickets than the Spurs sell for that arena. Yeah. Well, so. I'm not surprised. Well, one, it, it, it's a one kind of runoff thing. Like, you know, when a, when a when an event like the UFC or boxing comes to your town, it's not like you said, like the Spurs who play 40 times a year in your town. So that makes a difference. But also the fact that you could be there. I think a lot of people want to be there. One, they want to get back to normalcy. But there's a lot of people who's doing it more as a protest against the government or against whatever. There's a lot of people who don't care about COVID. Yeah, sure. Just showing showing that they can. Just kind of, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> but and I think we're going to get out of this because we don't want to go down the political path. Yeah, we don't want to go down that route. But nonetheless, I mean, the UFC is going to have 2,000 people in seats. At the bare minimum, that's a million bucks in LiveGate. I mean, the, the tickets were on the expensive end compared to regular UFC tickets, but even at just an average of 500 bucks a pop, that's a million dollars. And it's probably a good bit more than that. Considering that they're putting these events on in Abu Dhabi with the help of a stipend and direct support from the UAE 
Board of Tourism, that's a lot of money for them to be leaving on the table. Sure. If, you know, if they can justify it at all. And it sounds like they are justifying it, but this might be a change. I mean, if this, if this works, Mm -hmm. then we're back to having live crowds at events. Yeah. I, I, at least outside the U.S. Yeah. I would really wonder how much money the UFC is losing next weekend when they have Conor McGregor fighting in a, you know, not a, not a sold out crowd. You know, there's, not 15,000 people in San Antonio. I no. Mean, and maybe there will be more than 2,000 seats full for that one. Maybe this is a test run, and yeah. they'll be able to say, hey, all of, our, uh, all of our precautions worked out great, even though there's no way of telling that seven days from the last event. But they'll say, oh, you know, this is working out great. We showed you uh, we're going to sell 9,000 tickets. I don't know that, but I'll be interested to see what they do. Or they, or they just go to capacity, and they just have a – Quick sale from people from Ireland. <laughs> that that would not surprise me. All right. Anything else to say? Uh, actually, here, I do have one question for you. When we recap these events after the fact, we always end with giving the card a letter grade based on, you know, how good it was, how entertaining, uh, how... And it's usually kind of in relation to the expectations for that card. Let me ask you this. Looking at this card on paper, give this card a letter grade in advance. How good okay. a card is it on paper? Okay, so I, I love this question, but I have to put a little um, – like I got to pump the brakes a second because you, I have to put them in two categories. You have your pay-per-view and your fight night. So I'm grading it on a fight night scale, which is a much lower than I would on a pay-per-view. Now, if this was a pay-per-view, it would be like a D. Sure. You know. For a fight night, I'm going to go like a B plus. I mean, the main event is absolutely fantastic. There's a lot of other things I'm excited about. I mean, the return of Santiago Ponzinibbio is excited. Uh, you know, Joaquin Buckley, who's been such on a roll and exciting, had such a crazy year. Uh, really good showdown between contender series matchups with Soriano and, and Tordovich. But the biggest thing when I go through the 11 fights is maybe one or maybe two are easy picks. The rest of the card, they're hard picks. And, and even the ones that I feel confident in, I can see the avenue of the opponent that I'm not picking winning. And that is what really excites me about matchups. Uh, just adding a little statistical heft to that, as I updated my notes today, I believe all 11 lines moved closer within the last week. Yeah. So right now, it's so funny you said that. I just went over to five dimes to see what the, the betting lines are. Mm-hmm. And the biggest favorite is Santiago Ponzinibbio, who's a negative 290 favorite, which is you know very significant. But we've had, on a regular basis, we'll have three or four fights that big or higher. To sure. have none of them in the negative 300s, is, it means it's a really close line. All right. With that, let us dig into the 11-fight card of UFC on ABC1. Those prelims kick off with a featherweight scrap between Austin Lingo and Jacob Kilburn. Lingo, 7-1 in his mixed martial arts career, is 0-1 in the UFC, having made an unsuccessful debut against Yusef Zalal last year. The Texan is 26 years old and fights out of Fortis MMA in Dallas. He'll be taking on Jacob Kilburn, the killer, 25 years old, 8-3 overall, 0-1 in his mixed martial arts career, having taken on Billy Quarantillo and been choked out in the second round 
all the way back in December of 2019. Right now, uh, Lingo is a solid favorite, sitting around minus 220. You can get Kilburn around plus 185. How do you see this one, Keith? Well, this is this, this should have been the fight to start off 2021. Like, I feel I, it makes sense, like, a lower-level competition, you know, should start the card. But, like, you're starting the year, like, Give me a better fight to start the year. Like, start, you know, I, I want the the trivia question to be a much bigger name than this. Uh, that said, I'll start with Kilburn, uh, contender series guy. He's only twenty five years old, so you got to like that. He's got like just a closet full of black belts. He's a black belt in karate. He's a black belt in American Jiu Jitsu, whatever that means. He's a black belt in Judo. He has a purple belt in BJJ. Last, when, that was when I did the contender series for you. He might be higher than that now. He might be a brown belt, maybe even a black belt. Who knows? Uh, as a striker, he, he uses a high Muay Thai guard. He throws combinations. He has a really good left hook. Uh, throws lots of kicks. He loves spinning attacks. Throws it a little too much in spinning attacks. But you talk about back fists, kicks, elbows. Decent in the clinch, knees and elbows. He does have some trip takedowns from the clinch. That's kind of how he gets the fight to the ground. He looks for submissions, but he, like I mentioned, he's just a purple belt. And he's he loses positions a lot looking for these submissions. Um, kind of reminds me of like a Tim Elliott style. He kind of like a, like a funk style grappler. Uh, if he's on bottom, he really struggles to get on bottom with good good wrestlers. I go back to the, his, his UFC debut against Billy Quarantillo. Quarantillo dominated him on the ground quickly advanced from position to position with no resistance. And the other thing that really jumped out at me in that fight, in the very beginning of the second round, um, he jumped guard after just getting dominated by Quintillo for, the, for about five minutes on his back. And that makes me really question his fight IQ. Uh, move on to Austin Lingo. I just talked about like all the belts and stuff that uh, Kilburn has. Quintillo is kind of a prodigy himself. Uh, he's been training MMA since he was five years old. And he's now 26. When he was 15, he was living with Donald Cerrone at, at Donald Cerrone's ranch. He's now with Fortis MMA. Uh, he was a guy who came into the UFC with a lot of expectations, didn't have a good showing in his debut. But you just all you have to do is look at his fights heading into the UFC, and you realize why there was so much hype. This guy got some serious knockout power. His three fights before his UFC debut, they were 13 seconds, 25 seconds in 25 seconds. That was th three in a row. I mean, uh, I mean, the guy just can he can knock you out at any time in a fight. He's very aggressive. He really sits on his punches. He's got a really good counter right hand. He's got a killer left hook. He will also target the body, which obviously opens up those knockout blows. He really presses forward. The big flaw in his game, though, is, in which we saw in his debut against Yusuf Salau, is his defensive wrestling. I mean, he really he got taken down over and over again by Salau. And then he, as the fight went on, he struggled more and more to get up from bottom. For a prediction, I'm taking Lingo in this fight. Uh, he has the he. I just think he's a better fighter. Like he looks to me like a UFC level fighter, while I don't think Kilburn is. He does, Lingo has a huge defensive grappling hole, and that is the area that Kilburn, if he can get that, could win. That said, I don't, I'm not confident enough in Kilburn's takedowns to get it there over and over again. So I think there'll be enough on the feet 
and I think Lingo catches him with a shot, and I think Lingo puts him out in the very first round. So though I started off this by saying I didn't like that, like Lingo is going to be the answer to a tutorial question. Hopefully it does end in a really fun, spectacular knockout. So it might the UFC matchmakers might be smarter than me with their lineup. Oh, hey, he, he might be a trivia question in that the fastest knockout of, of the year was in the first fight of the year. Because I'm feeling that as well. Uh, you know, I know a lot more about Lingo than I do about Kilburn. Just, well, for one thing, Kilburn's been out for a full year. But Lingo, you know, he he came up through LFA. I've, I've seen a, a lot of his fights, been watching him. I mean, it was impossible not to watch him on his way up as he was just this machine, as you pointed out, n- taking out his last three opponents in a combined like 63 seconds of cage time. And even the rear naked choke, I mean, he dropped the guy, basically knocked him out dead and just jumped on his back and choked him unconscious instead of continuing the punch. But basically he just iced three, you know, decent, you know, solid LFA level fighters in under 30 seconds apiece. I don't think that's going to carry over to the UFC. I mean, I do think he'll stick on roster, but he's certainly not going to be putting all of his opponents away in in 30 seconds or less. He's not a Joaquin Buckley of the featherweight division. But Kilburn is the kind of guy that it will probably work against. Uh, Lingo has problems with his defensive wrestling, especially later in fights. Uh, he he doesn't completely gas out, but, you know, his pace, his aggression... Uh, you know, he he does lose a little steam later in the fight. I don't think that's going to be an issue here. I do think uh, he's he's kind of a pressure counter guy. He comes forward, you know, and then reacts when his opponent, you know, throws something. And that's going to work on Kilburn. I, I also have him knocking out Kilburn in the first round, probably the first half of the first round. Moving over to the women's bantamweight division, we have a matchup between Sarah Morris and Vanessa Mello. Uh, This is the lone fight on the card that might be accurately described as a pink slip derby, as it does feature two fighters who are below 500 in the UFC. Morris, the 32-year-old Canadian, is an even 6-6 and as a professional mixed martial artist. She is 3-5 and in the UFC having lost a decision to Sajara Eubanks last May. Before that, she beat Liana Jojua in September 2019. That got her back on track after a three-fight losing streak against Macy Chasson, Talita Bernardo, and Lucy Pudilova. She'll be taking on Mello. Mello is a 32-year-old Brazilian who is 10-8 as a professional mixed martial artist, and she is winless in three tries in the UFC octagon. She lost to Carol Rosa last July at UFC 251. In 2019, she lost to Tracy Cortez and Irene Aldana, all three of those losses by decision. Currently, Morris is a comfortable favorite, available around uh, minus 215. Mello, if you like her on the comeback, you can get plus 200 out there. I'll say right here that I don't know if either of these women is very long for the UFC. I think if Morris did not have that little bit of benefit of the doubt that comes from coming through the ultimate fighter, she might be gone already. But between these two, Morris has shown that she can beat UFC level fighters. And for the most part, her losses have been to good fighters. You know, Sajara Eubanks, Macy Chasson, Jessica Andrade, 
these are these are good fighters. Uh, I haven't seen anything from Vanessa Mello that leads me to believe that she's UFC level. Like, I even in even in the the time of COVID, I'm not sure why she's still on roster because she's looked kind of uninspired even in those losses. And while Irene Aldana is a very good fighter, Cortez and Rosa are not killers, and Mello just hasn't had much to offer them. She is a uh, Muay Thai style striker and she appears to be well trained and well schooled she has good fundamentals she just isn't fast or strong enough to do it to ufc level women and even against morris who you know not to be mean but sarah morris by the eyeball test is not the most imposing bantamweight on ufc roster uh there's gonna be a, a deficiency there morris wants to take you down rough you up a little bit and, you know, either just win the fight that way or, you know, get a submission. I think she's going to be able to do it to Mello. I, I think she's going to be able to walk through whatever Mello wants to, wants to throw at her. Morris. I mean, she's not a great fighter, but she's not a dumb fighter. I have the feeling she'll take uh, Mello down where, where Mello has looked largely helpless and just give me Morris by decision. It probably won't be a very pretty fight, it will get Morris over 500 for her career and on her way back to 500 in the UFC, she survives. I'm not going to say survives in advances, but she survives. And it'll probably be goodbye, Vanessa Mello. Am I crazy, Keith? <laughs> well, you mentioned that the loser is probably getting cut. I mean, Sarah Morris has won one fight in her last five. Mello's on a three-fight losing streak herself. So, yeah, these both these girls are fighting for the job. It's not a good fight. It's an ugly fight. Neither, I don't think either girl is UFC level or makes matters worth. Both fighters have recently missed weight, um, which makes me even more question why they're in the UFC. I'll start with Melo. You know it's a bad thing when you're most known for being the fighter who fought while being pregnant. Uh, to her defense, <laughs> she did not know she was pregnant, so she, she wasn't trying to kill a baby or anything weird like that. Um, let me talk about the positive let me talk about the talk about negatives about vanessa mello first uh she's slow as you mentioned she's flat-footed she has no head movement she kind of just wings punches without setting anything up she's a weak defensive wrestler she struggles on the bottom she's not a submission threat let me talk about the good things she does she's tough like she can take a beating uh, Irene aldana pummeled her and she kept fighting she's a high volume I don't want to say striker, but she throws a lot of punches. Like, those are the positives. <laughs> uh, move over to Sarah Morris. As, as bad as I just bash Vanessa Mello, Sarah Morris should not be a two-to-one favorite over anybody in the UFC. Uh, she's also very unathletic. She's very uncomfortable on her feet. She's also very slow. She has no power. All her punches are mostly arm punches, if, if people don't understand what I'm saying there. She keeps her chin very high in the air, making her very hittable. She she does have good output like Melo, so there'll, there'll be a lot of punches thrown in this fight. Um, but the reason why I'm gonna go with Morris, as you mentioned, she will she is not an idiot. She will close the distance. She will she's willing to grind against the fence. She'll look to get the fight to the ground. She's not a great wrestler, but she does have some submission wins. If she ends up on bottom though, she really struggles to get off the bottom, um, which is an issue. 
I, I don't want to pick either fighter, but I don't know what Melo's good at. And I do know Morales has some skill on the ground. So I expect him to get to the clinch, to pummel, to work a grinding, not fun affair. I think she'll sneak in a one or two takedowns and wins a unanimous decision. There you have it. Both of us have Sarah Morris by decision. The UFC on ABC one prelims soldier on, and we move on to the welterweight division where Ramazan Ameev takes on David Zavada. Ameev, 33 years old. The Dagestani is 19 and four in his mixed martial arts career. He is four and one in the UFC. He beat Nicholas Stoltz at UFC on ESPN 14 last July for his only appearance last year. Before that, he lost a decision to Anthony Rocco Martin in November of 2019, which put a stop to the three-fight win streak with which he opened his UFC career, beating Stefan Zakulic, Alberto Mina, and in his UFC debut, Sam Alvey. He'll be taking on Zavada, the... Uh, 30-year-old German is 1-2 since joining the UFC in 2018. Uh, he lost his first two fights in 2018 against Danny Roberts and Jingliang Li. He came back in November of 2019 and defeated Abubakar Nurmagomedov, and he was off for all of 2020. Emeyev is a 2.5-to-1 uh, favorite. You can get him around minus 255. Zavada is available around plus 225. How do you feel about this one, Keith? So, you know, Amayev, you know he's going to be a guy that I like because his style is he's a wrestle boxer. You know that I love my wrestle boxers. On the feet, he stays compact like your classic wrestle boxers, throws hard, he tacks with combinations. He has good timing on overhand right. He's a bit heavy on his feet front lead leg which helps generate power but also leaves him open to leg kicks that said he's going to want to get the fight to the ground because he's really good there he has great entries i mean this guy is a master of combat in in sambo uh, our international master of combat in sambo so you assume that he's going to have good entries as, as we know those guys do but what I really like about his entries is that he doesn't always have to take to the ground as long as he closes distance because he's willing to just close the distance, push you against the cage, work you there for a while, and then find the takedown when it's available. The other thing I like about him, if he misses a takedown, when a scramble pursues, he's looking to land strikes in those scrambles, which I really like. Uh, the one thing I don't like, though, is he has been taken down by weaker wrestlers. I, mean, I, I Stolzitz took him down in the last fight, which shouldn't have happened. Move over to Zawada. Zawada isn't known for his striking because he has really slow hands. Though he does press the action on the feet and he marches forward and he attacks the calves with pretty decent calf kicks. So I like that. But he is a terrible defensive wrestler. But he is, an, he is very aggressive on his back, as we saw in his last fight. He can catch submissions off his back. This is probably the easiest fight to pick on the card. Zawada has one chance to win this fight, and that is when he gets taken down to find a submission. But every minute that goes on, that chance is going to decrease. I hardly ever favor anybody. You know, I, I should say I hardly ever favor someone being on their mat catching a submission. And those, those who I do favor, they're the elite of the elite. 
not David Zawada. So I give me a Eve to get some takedowns. Maybe if uh, that he just grinds out Zawada on the ground, I think he picks up a unanimous decision. I agree with you. I'm I'm also going with uh, Amev in this one. There are there are some avenues for Zavada to at least make it interesting or try to blunt some of Amev's weapons. I mean, Amev's one UFC loss was to Anthony Rocco Martin, and something that Martin did that I thought was brilliant and may have defined the fight was he started hitting him with low kicks early and often on that heavy front foot that you pointed out. And I, I think it made him more hesitant both in the stand-up and probably took a little bit off of his takedowns. Uh, that is something that Zavada can do. I just don't know if he will, and I don't know if he will early and, and often enough to stop Ameo from doing what he wants to do. Uh, I could see, uh, I, I do think Ameo's wrestling will define this fight, but I could even see him uh, getting a submission late. Zavada hasn't, you know, he, he beat Abubakar Nurmagomedov with a fantastic triangle, but outside of that, like he, he hasn't really had much for UFC level fighters. You know, he was kind of sacrificed to Jing Liang Li. I mean, that was in China and, you know, Zavada being kind of a, a brawler guy was the perfect opponent for a better brawler in Li. Uh, but the, I mean, the kick that Lee finished him with where he just nailed him right on the solar plexus or maybe right on the liver. And he just went down and he was like waving it off. Like no mas. Ugh, can't get that out of my head. Uh, give me a may have, And just, I, you know, I, I think we need a little dissension here. I think he's going to, going to wear him down and get a finish. Give me probably a submission, maybe a TKO on the ground in the third round. I like that pick. Now we head to the heavyweight division as Carlos Felipe and Justin Taffa are set to scrap. Felipe, the 26-year-old Brazilian, is 9-1 in his professional career. He is 1-1 in the UFC with a loss to Sergei Spivak by majority to decision in his promotional debut last July, then a unanimous decision win over Jorgen de Castro back in October. He'll be taking on Tafa. Tafa, the 27-year-old Australian, is 4-1 in his relatively short MMA career. He is 1-1 in the UFC. He lost to uh, DeCastro by first-round knockout in his debut down in Australia back in October of 2019. He came back and knocked out Juan Adams at UFC 247 in Houston to even up his UFC ledger Right now, Felipe is a modest favorite. He is around minus 175, where you can get Tafa around plus 165. Uh, before we recorded, I was kind of scoffing at this fight as, well, here is your obligatory unranked heavyweight prelim. Uh, time to go take a pee break. But uh, Keith assures me that there are goods to be had here. So sell me this fight, Keith Schilling. <laughs> So, yeah. And if, it's, and if it's just because they both fought your boy Jorgen DeCastro, like, <laughs> yeah, you're out of here. <laughs> um, so, in pre-tape study, I was thinking the same thing. Like, oh, this is very low-level heavyweights. And then I started watching it, and there's some things I actually like about these guys. I'll start with with Tafa. He's southpaw. He has pretty fast hands. 
He loves the uppercut. He's got big power. He has some huge defensive flaws. Like, he lacks head movement. He kind of just ducks behind his forearms. And he can be too aggressive, leaving openings like we saw in the Yogan de Castro where he, you know, he got counterattacked and got knocked out. But he's pretty fast, and we've seen him knock guys out himself. Whoa, to Felipe. Felipe looks terrible. Like, he has, like, when you look at him, his belly is huge. (laughs) But then when you watch him, he uses feint spells. His hands are surprisingly fast. He's got good output. Like he didn't slow it down too bad, and and well until Jorgen decided just to clinch over, and over and over again. But he works behind the jab. He loves the overhand right, though he does telegraph it a little bit. But he will target the body. He's got a nice bob and weave style, thudding leg kicks, and obviously he's a heavyweight, so he has some power. So. Both both guys look pretty good in their last fight, so I'll give them that. Tafa knocked out Juan Adams in the last fight. Felipe beat Jorgen de Castro. I'm taking Tafa. Both guys have pretty good speed. However, Tafa has the power advantage. I think both guys will land some good shots, but I think Tafa will eventually find the kill switch. Tafa would win by first-round knockout. That is actually an upset. I'm going to upset City, and I'm knocking this in as not only is this a good fight, but this is my upset special of me taking Tafa by knockout in the first round. Uh, I have the feeling that your pick is going to make you look very smart and me look very dumb because it is real easy for me to talk myself into why Tafa is going to win this. Carlos Felipe is that rare case of a 265-pound man who does not have one-punch knockout power. It kind of stands out at heavyweight if you don't. The other thing that disturbs me about Felipe is how easily uh, Sergey Spivak was able to take him down. Spivak is one of the smallest heavyweights on roster. There's two things you're supposed to have if you're a six-foot-one, 265-pound guy. You're supposed to punch really hard, and it you're supposed to be able to keep a 230 pound guy like off your hips and, and legs and, and shuck him off. He has not displayed either of those things. Whereas, I mean, Tafa for all of his flaws, he is a hard hitter. Luckily for Felipe, Tafa is not the kind of guy who's going to test his takedown defense. Tafa is incredibly green. I mean, he's green even by the standards of a five fight, uh, MMA veteran. You know, he had three fights in uh, Australia, like in Oceania, against super low-level competition. All of them were finishes within the first two rounds. You know, he got called up to fight primarily because it was a card in Australia. By all rights, I mean, Tafa should should still be fighting in Australia and, and New Zealand and getting seasoned there. Instead, he's getting seasoned on the biggest stage. So even though, again, just my, my mind is screaming at me that Tafa's just going to come out and lamp this guy in like 90 seconds, I am going to go with the niftier striker, the guy with better hand speed, the guy with a more diverse striking arsenal. Uh, you know, I think Felipe also is a little quicker on his feet than Tafa is. And give me Felipe in kind of a grim, hard-to-watch decision. Just he manages to keep his chin off the gunnery range for 15 minutes. There you go. What better way to have dissension than Tafa 
and Felipe to start the year. I mean, we and we can see who who's got the cojones here because Keith is just putting his foot down and saying, "This is my upset special," where I just gave the most lukewarm endorsement of a fighter ever. So, <laughs> I'm sure this is going to come up in the recap. That brings us back to the women's bantamweight division, where Yanan Wu will welcome the debuting Jocelyn Edwards to the UFC. Wu, the 24-year-old Chinese fighter, is 11-3 in her mixed martial arts career. She is 1-2 in the UFC. She has not appeared in the cage in almost a year and a half. She... Uh, defeated Mizuki Inoue at UFC Fight Night 157 back in August of 2019. Uh, she lost that fight by split decision. She defeated Lauren Mueller in November 2018. She lost her UFC debut to Gina Mazzani at UFC Fight Night 122 all the way back in November of 2017. She will be taking on Edwards the 25-year-old Panamanian, who is 9-2 overall, uh, making her uh, promotional debut off of a win in UWC Mexico last July. Uh, She did have an appearance in the LFA cage back in 2018, where she lost a split decision to Sarah Alpar for the LFA women's bantamweight title. Uh, my, My tape on... Uh, Jocelyn Edwards is fairly limited, but I saw her LFA fight even at the time, rewatched it now. Uh, Edwards is a powerful striker. She kicks really hard. She punches hard. Uh, you know, she she is a, a come-forward Muay Thai-style striker from what I've been able to observe. She lost to Alpar because she got ground out, but Alpar is a grinder. I mean, that's what she does. I, I think there's going to be a difference in power and physicality once she and Wu get in the cage together. Uh, despite the fact that Wu is, you know, going to be the taller and longer fighter, she is a tall, kind of thin, willowy uh, bantamweight. I mean, she's been a flyweight for most of her career. She's moving up to bantamweight now, but it's not like she's somebody who is just like bursting with muscle out of her top, and we could see this move coming a, a mile away. Uh I, I I think Edwards is going to have a very successful debut here. Wu had all the potential in the world when she joined the UFC. I mean, she was like 20. I, she might not even have been 21 yet. I think she might have been 20 at the time of her debut. But since then, she's fought very sporadically. And she's not shown me anything that makes me think she can keep a real live UFC level Bantamweight offer. I think Edwards is a UFC level Bantamweight and I think she's going to knock Wu out. Uh, give give me Edwards by second round knockout. Wow. So, yeah, you mentioned how young Wu is. She's only 24 years old. Edwards is only 25. So this is the battle of two young girls. I'll start with Wu. As you mentioned, she's big for the weight class. Um, she's even bigger when she doesn't make weight for the weight class. Uh, she's a service, serviceable striker at best. She loses a lot of feints. She got pretty decent head movement, but she's not a great athlete. She's kind of slow, doesn't have a high output. She does throw decent kicks, but nothing spectacular. She's not a great wrestler. She is a submission threat. I mean, she armbarred Lauren Mueller 
and she almost caught Mizuki Inoue in the standing guillotine. Uh, but I wouldn't call her like a huge, you know, she's not Mackenzie Dern on the on the canvas. Move over to Edwards. Same thing as you said. I've seen some film of her. I haven't watched tons of them. Um, from what I've seen, she's feasted on really low-level competition for the most part until she came over to, you know, like you mentioned, the LFA kind of recently. But before that, she was really feasting. Uh, she also is a big girl herself. She's big for the weight class. You mentioned she has a kickboxer style. She has some pretty fast hands. She's got good power. Uh, though she does throw her punches from her hip, she's not too technically sound. She can get a little wild, too. Hard leg kicks, hard kicks to the body. She's got a good plum clinch where she really tattoos her opponent inside there. I haven't seen enough from Edwards to have a lot of confidence in picking her. That said, I have seen enough of Yan Wu to know that I don't like what she does. So I will agree with you. I will go with the unknown because I know that is probably better than what I've seen in Wu. So give me Edwards. And I'm also going to take her by knockout. And I'm going to go. What you said? You said second round. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm going to. I'll have to one up you, and I'll go in the first round. Outstanding. And what I should have said right off the top, but uh, forgot to, is that this is as close to a pick'em as we have on the card. As of Wednesday night when we're recording, you can get Woo around minus 105. Edwards, you can still get it even money plus 100. Is is. Edward is the only person making their debut on the card? I believe so. There you go. There's a trivia question for you. First debut of 2021. As, as long as, as well, we're recording till fight night, nothing happens. And we'll remember this point of trivia 18 months from now when she is knocking out Amanda Nunes to win the Bantamweight Championship. You heard it here from Keith Schillen. That brings us to the feature prelim of the evening as Phil Hawes and Nasruddin Imavov look to build on the momentum of their respective successful Octagon debuts in a middleweight clash. Hawes, the 32-year-old American, is 9-2 as a mixed martial artist. He is 1-0 in the UFC, having uh, knocked out Jacob Malkoon at UFC 254 last October, and that was on a quick turnaround from his second appearance on Dana White's Contender Series, which took place uh, in September of last year. He will be taking on Imavov, the 25-year-old Dagestani by way of France. He is also 9-2. He is 1-0 in the UFC, which extended his overall win streak to 6. He uh, defeated Jordan Williams by unanimous decision at UFC uh, Home versus Aldana last October. Haas is a slight favorite. He is hovering around minus 125, where Imavov is available at plus 115. Nasruddin Imavov is, well, I just said this about Wu versus Edwards. Imavov is going to be the taller fighter, but he's the guy that's been a welterweight for most of his career. He likes to be an outfighter. He likes to be a sniper, uses kicks, his uh, his jab, and you know, his movement to basically engage in a distance kickboxing contest. He calls himself the Russian sniper. That's that's a, a fair a, assessment of his game. Nobody is going to confuse Phil Haas for a welterweight. This dude has muscles on his muscles. And 
I don't think he's going to let Imabov have the fight that he wants. I think he, I mean, he's not amazing at cutting off the cage. Like he might have a little frustration in the early going, getting inside on Imavov, who, you know, does does have decent footwork. But Hawes is going to be able uh, eventually to walk him down. He's a, I, I think he's a much better fighter in his, he was a much better fighter in his second Dana White's Contender Series appearance than he was in his first. Just, you know, the kind of progression that a fighter makes between their like fourth fight and their eighth or whatever it was. Uh, give me Hawes to get inside on Imavov and just put him away, probably with punches in the first round. Wow. So I'll start with Hawes. Obviously, he's got a very familiar with contender series guy, multi-time contender series guy. It, it, it's nice to see Hawes's, you know, results in his last two fights. He looked absolutely spectacular. It's nice to see him to finally kind of live up to his lofty expectations that was cast on him. I mean, there was one time this guy was getting compared to John Jones. Um, as I think I said recently, he looks more like a small Francis Nagano. As you said, he's huge. You know, fairness, well, he got some lofty expectations thrown on him. He lost to really good opponents. I mean, he lost to Luis Taylor, the PFL champion, and Julian Marquez. And his other loss on, on tough was Andrew Sanchez. Like, all three are UFC level in a PFL champion. He's only 32, so he kind of now is the time for him to really get it together or before it's too late. He's an explosive athlete. Absolutely, you mentioned absolutely shredded, has great power. He's aggressive. Does well to keep his head off the saddle line. Has really good hand speed. He's been working behind a jab, powerful leg kicks. He's a very good wrestler too. I mean, this guy was a junior college national champion. Fast entries, just drives right through sprawls. Got good ground control, decent tactics. He doesn't conserve his energy, um, which is a little concerning. And the fact that he carries so much muscle, he can gas himself out. So cardio is an issue. And and I'm also still worried about his chin. I mean. Marquez sent him into another dimension with that perfectly timed high kick. But he does have all the attributes to be a champion if he can fix those the cardio and, and the chin. Uh, Imamov is a guy I also like. This guy's only 24 years old, which is scary. He's well-rounded. Uh, on the feet, he stays so calm. He's light on the feet. He's a solid counter-striker. Fast hands. Some really nice snap on his punches. He has decent power. I love his step-back right hand, which he times very well. I do hate that he drops his hands, especially if he's facing a guy that hits as hard as Hawes. I like his clinch striking, though. He, he'll get in there, beat you up there. He's got good entries on his takedowns. He's relentless to get his takedown attempts. Solid top control, solid ground and pound. He is a submission threat. I mean, he almost submitted Jordan Williams. I think other guys would have got submitted. This is a really fun fight. That, that said, I am also taking... Hawes, he just simply at a more advanced stage in his career. He's in his prime right now where uh, Imabov is probably a few years away. Hawes should be able to stop some of the takedowns himself. And then on the feet, I think he could start him. So I say Hawes keeps his turnaround going. I say he also catches Hawes by first-round knockout. But I think this is a fight that like three years from now we'd be really clamoring for because I like Imabov still. We start off the UFC on ABC One main card with the answer to another trivia question because it is the first matchup between two undefeated fighters in the UFC in 2021. And for all we know, it may end up being the only one. Uh, Jay Petrie, Sherdog's 
in-house statistics uh, wizard and I were brainstorming this, and I think that Izzy versus Costa might have been the only fight between two undefeated fighters in the UFC last year. Uh, they're they're not as common as you would think in this day and age. You know, if a fighter is undefeated, they are typically being matched in a way so as to keep them undefeated until they're yeah. a contender. Well, Chael uh, Sonnen did a fight in the UFC in 2020, so... That, well, there you go, because he is he is always undefeated. You know, when you beat up a man for t- 24 and a half minutes and he wraps your, his legs around your head for 30, you know, in West Lynn, Oregon, they, they know what to call that. Or, or, or so I've heard. Ah, I, I miss having Chael as a fighter. <laughs> I like him fine as a commentator, but I, I actually did, did miss having him as a fighter. He, he, he was pretty damn funny sometimes. At any rate, let's stop talking about Chael Sonnen and start talking about Punahele Soriano and Dusko Todorovic. Uh, Soriano, the 28-year-old Hawaiian, is a perfect 7-0. He is 1-0 in the UFC, having joined the uh, company through Dana White's Contender Series in 2019. He knocked out Oscar Piahoda at UFC 245 uh, all the way back in December of 2019. Uh, Todorovic, the... 26-year-old Serbian is 10-0. He is also 1-0 in the UFC. Also joined through Dana White's Contender Series in 2019. But he has fought much more recently as he blew away Dequan Townsend uh, with second-round punches back in October. Todorovic is the slight favorite. He is around minus 150. You can get Soriano around plus 135. Uh, how do you see this one playing out, Keith? Well, this is two guys that I, I like. I like them on the contender series. I'll start with Soriano. He's a little undersized for the weight class. He might eventually have to be forced down to welterweight. Uh, he's a southpaw. He's got some big power. He wants to slide in the pocket where he can unload and looks for a brawl. He's a pretty accurate striker, though sometimes he does telegraph his strikes because he loads up on everything. His left his left hand is his moneymaker. He, 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 if he touches you that, he's going to knock you out. He mixes kicks in with, with his combos, which I like. He has a solid chin. I haven't seen him rocked in the past. He's a former NCAA wrestler. He has quick entries. Shows great strength when he gets on your hips because he'll pick you up in the air and slam you. Uh, he can also get some t- trip takedowns if he's in the clinch. He's relentless with his ground and pound really, really hard. One of the big concerns, heading he's been out for a while, and you find out he's been out, and it's going to seem kind of against what I said when I said he has a good chin. I haven't seen him rocked. One of the reasons why he said he's been out is that he's been dealing with concussions, which is very concerning for a young fighter and makes me uh, pause and take him. Move over to, to Dorovich. He was probably my favorite prospect coming out of the of the season he was on. Uh, he came into the UFC with some good wins. Uh, sorry, came into the contender series with some really good wins. Alexander Popek, uh, Michelle Pajera, who's obviously doing very well in the UFC, got matched up against Teddy Ash, who's not a bad fighter to get matched up with against contender series. Uh, he's also likes to fight from the southpaw position. Technical striker, some really nice pop on his punches, great jab, works the body beautifully. He stands a little too high with his hands low, which I don't like. But he does that because he has such good head movement, and he does it to keep himself in range. Like He can force you to kind of chase his chin, and then he leaves himself in range to land. Great in the clinch. 
this is he, what I like about him is that he also initiates the clinch. So when he's grabbing the clinch, he goes instantly onto offense. When you have to react to that, uh, he will just grind you against a fence uh, like he did against Teddy Ash. He's a good wrestler. He likes trips and throws. Good top control. Good ground and pound. I mean, we saw what he did in his last fight with his ground and pound. He constantly looks to advance to a position when he's on the canvas, and he's got three submission wins on his record. So as far as a prediction, I hate this matchup because I like both guys. I think they're both really good. That's why I don't like them being matched against each other this early in their careers. Tudoris looked – he was disappointing in his matchup against Teddy Ash on the Contender Series, but he still got the contract. And I think he got the contract because I expected that the matchmakers who did the research were so high on him because he looked absolutely spectacular before that matchup. And he looked so much better against Townsend. I'm going to trust my pre-Dana White Contender Series tape study, which got me so high on him. I'm going to trust that, that I think he will look like the guy I saw in the pre-tape study. I think he's going to beat up Soriano on the feet and on the ground. And I think, and he's also bigger than him. So put all that together, I think he wins a unanimous decision. I feel a lot of what you're putting out there. An interesting look at Todorovic is his last fight before the contender series because he was actually the last person to beat Michelle Pereira before Pereira like strung together two or three more wins and then got to the UFC. But I, I mean, he laid out the blueprint for how to beat Michelle Pereira, uh, you know, before anyone in the UFC even did it. You know, he survived a couple minutes of his wild stuff, uh, walked him into the fence and just punched his lights out. Uh, I, I I like a lot about Todorovic's game, and it feels as though he's still improving quite a bit from fight to fight. Uh, he is, you know, a physically good-sized uh, fighter for the division. There's a lot I like about Soriano. Well, for one thing, I, I like that I don't know if he does it anymore, but Soriano's, like, quote-unquote day job used to be he was one of uh, Ali Abdelaziz's assistants. So when you were trying to line up uh, an interview with an Ali fighter, you know, like Puna Soriano was like the the guy that that, that, that helped set that up for you. Excellent customer service skills if, if this fight thing doesn't work out for him. Uh, having said that, I think the fight thing is working out for him just fine, but I don't think it's going to work out for him this Saturday. Uh, we're at a point in 2021 where I think we're well past the Hawaiian brawler stereotype, but Soriano's a bit of a throwback to that. He, he matches it a lot better than, than some other people that they try to slap that, that name onto. One thing that Soriano has going for him that is a little outside of the, you know, just scrap bra mold is he, he's an underratedly good offensive wrestler. If he's smart, he will try to use that on Todorovic and get some top control time and a little ground and pound going in the first round or two, even if he doesn't finish him, just if he's able to win the rounds without tiring himself out. Because the thing that worries me about him is that Soriano gets tired, and I've not seen Todorovic really do that. Todorovic has all the offensive weapons, but he's also capable of grinding out an ugly win. And that's what I'm kind of feeling in this one. Uh, I, I think he's just a, a niftier striker than Soriano. Uh, the clinch will not be a safe place for Soriano. And unless he makes the decision, like a conscious decision, to use his wrestling early, I think he's just going to get a little of the worse of a kickboxing match until he gets much the worse of a kickboxing match. I could see a finish coming late if Soriano's truly exhausted, but he's a really tough guy. We haven't seen him lose yet. Uh, 
So give me Todorovic by a decision in a fight in which he is pulling further ahead as things go along. Yeah, can I just jump in for a second? You said something that really jumps out to me. You talked about his like brawling style. One thing when I watched him, and it's going to sound really crazy because he has such such good power that I feel like if he had less power, he might actually be a better fighter because he he wants to brawl because he wants to land the big haymaker. And it's kind of like that. Remember that moment in the Tony Ferguson fight where uh, with Justin Gaethje and Gaethje's coach? I can't think of his name right now. Um, Trevor Whitman said Whitman, to him, yeah. said to him, like, hope, like, stop trying to knock his block off, like, pull a little bit back. Because I've seen Soriano be very accurate with the strikes and have, like, some good technical skills. Like, pull some back and then unload the, the big shot when the opening's there. I think he becomes such a much better fighter. And then, obviously, with Justin Gaethje, which is, he reminds me so much of Gaethje. I, I don't know why I didn't say this in my actual breakdown. The other thing about, like, you're a good wrestler, start using it more, like we've always said about Justin Gaethje. There you go. Remember, folks, the worst thing that ever happened to Josh Koscheck was realizing that he could knock people out pretty easily with his right hand. Oh, and 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 Dan Henderson went through a little stretch of that too. But Dan Henderson was good enough at it to win titles. Koscheck never was. Whereas, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't mean <laughs> to compare those two. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just want to admit, like, sometimes it's weird. Sometimes you add aspects to the game, and it takes you away from your strength. We will stay in the 185-pound weight division as Joaquin Buckley takes on Alessio DeCurico in a main card attraction. Buckley, the 26-year-old from St. Louis, is 12-3 in his mixed martial arts career. He is 2-1 since joining the UFC in the middle of 2020 and really uh uh, about as much of a coming out party as any fighter not named Kevin Holland or Kamzat Shemaev can say they had in the year of COVID-19. He debuted against the aforementioned Holland, losing by third round knockout. Then after that, authored one knockout of the year contender and one knockout of any year contender as he put out Impa Kasanganai with a spinning back heel kick for the ages in October, then turned around a month and a half later and knocked out Jordan Wright with punches. He'll be taking on DeKirico. The 31-year-old Italian is 12-5 and as a professional mixed martial artist. He is 3-5 and in the UFC. He is on a three-fight losing streak, having lost also to Holland in June of 2019, having lost to Mahmoud Muradov, in September of 2019, and then lost to Zach Cummings at UFC Fight Night, Smith versus Rockich in August of last year. Buckley, a strong favorite, is sitting there around minus 255. DeKirico, if you like him, you can get around plus 225. I, I will say that if they're trying to make a squash match for their new highlight machine, by matching him up with a guy who's coming off of three losses, they're picking an interesting way to do it because DeKirico is exactly the kind of guy that Buckley could beat and I think is likely to beat without really making a highlight out of it. DeKirico is a, he's a tough guy to look great against. I mean, he's three and five in the UFC, but the only real highlight at his expense, ironically, is getting triangled by Eric Spicely way back in 2017. Other than that, he just kind of loses fights where he's there. 
He's too tough for him to put away. Really, he's too tough for him to even hurt very badly. Uh, so it's an it it's an interesting matchup to me that that they're matching Buckley with him, because again, it's someone who's coming off of three losses. The only reason he's still on UFC roster is they wanted him there for a reason. That reason is to fight Joaquin Buckley. So it, it's it's interesting. It's uh, I actually think it's a. I won't say it's it's a, an appropriate matchup for Buckley. I mean, he he probably should have a little bit of a step up from this. Uh, but I, I, who do you think wins this one and how? Yeah, I so a lot of things you already said. I kind of agree with. Like, it is a weird matchup. You said, you know, you mentioned about that. Jericho does not get knocked out. Like, a, like a Gerald Mershon would have made a lot more sense. You know, if you want to give him someone that he could easily knock out. Uh, starting with with Buckley, one thing, you know, going back to the matchup that we were wrong about. I was listening to our preview of his last fight. We both said that if he wins by spectacular knockout, which he did, that he'd probably get rushed and get a top 15 guy next. No, that did not happen. So we were wrong about that. Uh, Buckley's undersized for middleweight. That's one thing I want to point out. This guy does not cut weight at all. That's he, he weighed in his last fight like three pounds underweight. Uh, he's southpaw. He's he's so explosive, so insanely athletic. He has a bob and weave style. I really liked in his last fight to add it between the bob and weave. He actually added a little up and down feints against Jordan Ray. He throws tight hooks. Uh, he, I mentioned the last breakdown. He explodes with combination. He's not like Tyron Woodley who explodes and looks for one shot or one like one line of shots. He's looking to land multiple shots and try to get you as you as you're circling away. He loves his power straight left. I'm really impressed with his defensive skills. He stays very compact. He hides his chin behind his shoulders. He doesn't throw enough kicks, and he also doesn't check kicks. But he isn't just a striker, though. He will sneak in a takedown. He has decent entries. He can get it, he can get you down from the clinch. If he gets on top, he has hard ground and pound. Cardio is a bit of concern for me. Though I haven't seen him gas out yet, I'm just assuming cardio will be an issue because he throws everything so hard. Uh, move over to DiCario. Uh, I'm, I'm going to butcher this guy's name. I apologize. <laughs> DiCarico. Uh, my Italian is not the best. Uh, as I mentioned, I started with Buckley. I mentioned how he's small for the weight class. DiCario's big for the weight class. He's a counter striker. He likes to parry. He does a lot of like hand grabbing and parrying punches. He also likes to pull guys into his power shots. He kind of has like a, <clears throat> excuse me, he pulls people into his his power right hand. He doesn't come forward enough, but when he does, he comes with whipping power shots in bursts. Kind of actually very similar to what Buckley does, but he doesn't have true one punch knockout power, which is probably the, his biggest flaw. He throws a lot of kicks, though he has some defensive flaws. He keeps his chin high. But as we you mentioned, he's got a good chin. Like he hasn't been knocked out yet. Clinch could be actually be a strength for him too. That's like where he likes to be. He likes to be in close, striking, making it kind of like a dirty, kind of grimy fight like he did with Kevin Holland. He will sneak in a takedown attempt, though he's not a powerful wrestler. As you mentioned, this is supposed to be a, sh- a showcase fight for Buckley. The Jericho has he's a veteran. He has got enough skills in in the size vision that he can make this ugly. I also still think Buckley wins. I don't expect him to get the knockout. Uh, so I will take Buckley by decision, and it's going to be one of those ones where people start jumping off the bandwagon. 
I'm I'm with you. There are two things that I try not to do uh, when I'm uh, predicting a fight. You know, one, I, I try not to make a prediction that requires one fighter to make mistakes or fight against uh, his or her, you know, best advantage unless they have a demonstrated history of doing so. And I try not to pick something happen to happen that I've never seen before, never seen happen before. Uh, in the Kiriko, we have somebody who's, who's not been knocked out. And like I say, hasn't even really been close to being knocked out. I mean, he's lost plenty of fights, but like no one's like, I've never watched the Kiriko fight where I was like, Oh man, this thing's almost like he's almost out of there. And uh, aside from maybe being a little too slow and deliberate, even in fights that he must know he's losing, he's not a stupid fighter. Like he's he he's not going to give the highlight to Buckley. So if I assume that he's just going to to fight to his absolute best advantage, that he will try to clinch and and wear Buckley out, that you know he'll try to take him down, I still see him losing. Uh, a lopsided decision, you know, where he just gets hit and marked up and Hey, maybe he does get hurt. You know, m maybe Buckley just catches him with one of these gnarly power shots and, and we see how good his chin really is, but I, I don't see any obvious way for DeKiriko to win rounds. Even if he fights to his best advantage, unless we're to the third round and Oh, Hey, it turns out Buckley is tired. So even there, He's probably losing two rounds to one. So, yeah, give me uh, Buckley by decision. And I, I don't know if the, the bandwagon will empty, but I know that if Buckley uh, surprises us and just wastes the Kiriko, that bandwagon's going to get even more crowded. That brings us to the welterweight division and the uh, highly anticipated return of a former contender to the ranks as Santiago Ponzinibbio takes on Jingliang Li. Ponzinibbio, the 34-year-old Argentinian, is 27-3 overall. He is 9-2 in the UFC, has not fought since November 17th of 2018. So a layoff of two years and nearly three months. But of course, uh, had left off on a seven-fight winning streak in one of the toughest divisions in the sport. Those wins, a knockout of Neil Magny, a decision over Mike Perry, a knockout of Gunnar Nelson, unanimous decisions over Nordine Taleb and Zach Cummings, and knockouts of Court McGee and Andreas Stahl. So seven straight wins uh, since his last loss. He'll be taking on Lee. The 32-year-old from China is 17-6. and six. As a professional mixed martial artist, he is 9-4 and four in the UFC. His last fight, coincidentally, was a unanimous decision loss to Magny at UFC 248 back in March of 2020. Before that, he had won three straights, uh, taking out Eliseo Zaleski dos Santos, David Zavada, and Daichi Abe. Ponzinibbio, a strong favorite Despite the long layoff, available around minus 275. Lee, available at plus 250. I will say that I don't know if Santiago Ponzinibbio should be almost a, a three-to-one favorite over anybody coming off as long a layoff as he has. Just because 
all of that assumes that he is anything like the fighter he was. And he's not terribly old, but he was a blood and guts fighter when he was in the UFC. So he, he had an appropriate amount of mileage for someone who was, I, I mean, 31, 32 at the time that he left off. But then the reasons that he has been gone for over two years, injuries, a serious staph infection. I mean, staph infections, like systemic staph infections, are the kind of things that, that take something out of a fighter even long term. You know, it's not like the flu or a 24-hour virus that, you know, you get over it and you get better or, you know, you just go take some some penicillin and, and stay in bed for a week. You know, staph infections that's that severe have have left fighters changed. On top of that, he had COVID. You know, and he's one of those fighters that he freely admitted that it wiped him out. You know, there are fighters out there, people like Leon Edwards, that we're going to need to wait to see what they look like when they come back to fight. Uh, there are just so many question marks hanging over him. If he is the Santiago Ponzinibbio who wasted Magni, if he's even 80% of that Santiago Ponzinibbio, he should walk through Jing Liang Li. Li stylistically is built for, for Ponzinibbio. You know, Li came into the UFC as a bit of a wrestle grinder and discovered that he liked bonus checks and has become a bit of a brawler. Like he's not the, the strikeritis wrestler who discovered that he had knockout power and said, Oh man, this is a lot easier than like shooting double legs. He's just a guy who, uh, likes to brawl, uh, definitely likes to come forward and brawl and is willing to wrestle. If it comes to that, that is exactly the type of fighter that Santiago Ponzinibbio in 2018 would have just put through the wood chipper. Uh, I, I think of Ponzinibbio as one of the one of the better strikers in the welterweight division, specifically uh, some of the best hands in the welterweight division. Uh, he throws in combination. He has power. And, you know, we've been talking about, you know, you don't have to throw your 100-mile-an-hour fastball and everything. He's the kind of guy that has power without seeming to load up on everything. Just, you know, he sits down on his punches, has good fundamentals, uh, and just probably has some natural power to him. Uh, again, he, he's the, the type of guy that, that should, if he's anything like his former self, uh, blow out Jing Liang Li. But even if I were a betting man, I wouldn't be putting anything down on Ponzinibbio minus 275 in his first fight back after over two years away. Uh, give me Ponzinibbio by decision. And if he's the good Ponzinibbio and he's no worse for wear, he wins all three rounds in lopsided fashion. But again, uh, this mostly for me will be a referendum on whether Ponzinibbio is he's right back as a borderline top 10 contender, or he needs to take a step back. And I mean, he could win this fight and still have me saying, okay, he needs a, a bit of a step back. Yeah. So I'm also really excited to see Ponzinibbio back. I hope he's healthy. I hope he, you know, we see the guy that was seemed to be peaking like we last seen him. But as you mentioned, I also have some huge concerns. I don't think he should be the biggest favorite. Yeah. As of we speak right now, it's late Wednesday night when this is getting recorded. 
I don't think he should be the biggest favorite in the card. If he is the same fighter, so I'm going to judge him. I'm going to talk about what we last saw him because I, I can't guess. But he's a, you know, last we last saw him, he was a very technically sound striker. Used, he had great movement, great footwork. He uses that movement and footwork to set traps, to find angles. He, use, he, he uses range. He understands range very well. Had good vision, great vision. I should say great vision. Fast hands, I think you mentioned. He works behind a jab, and it's a stinging jab. It's a p- powerful jab. He drops guys with a jab. Uh, he sets up a lot of his offense behind his feints, throws combinations. He has good power, like you said. He doesn't have he doesn't have great power. He's not a you know he's not get, he's not hitting you in the head with a hammer. It's more like a stick. And if you keep hitting him with someone with a stick, you're probably gonna put him down eventually. If you keep hitting him over his head with a stick, that's kind of the power he has. Uh, he loves his left hook, which is might be his best uh, punch besides the the obvious jab. And, and if he hurts you, he has the killer ink stick to put you out. I love his leg kicks. I mean, he brutalized everyone. I mean, Neil, Neil Magny, he was going off on the leg kicks. Here at Mike Perry with the leg kicks, uh, really attacking the calves. In, in, in something DC pointed out in, in the fight against Mike Perry is that he'll set up his punches with the kicks. Like, he kept inside kicking Mike Perry to lining him up to his right hand, which is like, – I wouldn't have noticed that if Daniel Cormier wasn't saying it, and it was absolutely spectacular uh, technique. He isn't known for his grappling, but he will sneak in a, a takedown just to keep his opponent honest and also to set up the striking by faking in a takedown, which would be very wise to use against Lee. Uh, and he has good cardio. I mean, you watch his fights, you know, his fight, last fight against Neil Magny, he was going hard in the fourth round. He was going harder in the third round against Mike Perry, stuff like that. Move on to Lee. Uh, Lee is just so inconsistent. I mean, you look at him two fights ago against Alessio Seleski Dos Santos. He looked absolutely incredible. You look at him against Neil Magny, and he looked terrible. As you mentioned, he likes to strike, but I would say he's a serviceable boxer. Nothing spectacular, but, you know, not terrible. He does have good head movement. I like that. But he really, really struggled with the range and pressure of Neil Magny. He hits hard, but he's he's not, you know, he's not a crushing striker. Good leg kicks. As you mentioned, he comes he has a wrestling background. He, I think he's got a little underrated wrestling. Think about, like, Neil Magny. He was able to take Magny down a couple of times. But he's got. I would say he's underrated offensive wrestling. His defense wrestling is, is, is very questionable. I mean, Jake Matthews took him down a lot. Neil Magny took him down a lot. I do like his cardio. Like, even though Neil Magny was putting on him in the last fight, like, he had a cardio to, like, keep fighting hard through the three rounds, even though he was getting the break speed off of him. I'm I'm worried about this too, as you said mentioned, but I have to go with what I've last seen and what I last seen upon Zanibio, he was much better. I would have had obviously a lot more confidence two years ago. If he is close to where he was, he is way more technically sound. I think he pieces up Lee and I am actually gonna think he's gonna get a late finish. So I will say I I'll take Ponzio having a great return to MMA and I say he wins by third round TKO. With that, we come to the co-main event. We stay in the welterweight division for a matchup between veterans as Carlos Condit takes on Matt Brown. Condit, the former World Extreme Cage Fighting Welterweight Champ, the former UFC Interim Welterweight Champ, is 36 years old, the longtime representative of Jackson Wink MMA, 
is 31 and 13 in his professional career. He is eight and nine since joining uh, the UFC after the dissolution of the aforementioned WEC. He will be taking on Brown. Brown just turned 40 years old a couple of days ago. The Ohio native, 22 and 17 in his mixed martial arts career, 15 and 11 since joining the UFC in June of 2008, at which time Yanan Wu was 12 years old. The odds are pretty close on this one. Condit sitting as a slight favorite, around minus 160. Brown available at plus 145 or plus 150. I'm going to ask you for your pick on this one, but before you even pick it, how much are you looking forward to this fight? Are, are you expecting a good fight out of this one? And then by all means, tell me how you see it playing out. Um, yeah, I see. I, 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 so I've listened to some people and some people are very excited about this fight. After watching tape study, I'm more excited for this fight than I was pre-tape study. I was looking at both these guys kind of being done. And I still feel I definitely lean more towards both these guys being done. And both guys are so likable that I don't really want to see one of them lose. Uh, so overall, I'd say I'm not too excited. How about you? Are you excited? I'm I'm fairly excited, but all the all the reasons this would have been a sensational fight five years ago, eight years ago. They they have all diminished. You know, both guys are, you know, neither guy has the durability or gas tank that he had in his prime. And considering that I, this, was, this was never going to be like a one-punch knockout fight, like people don't do that to Carlos Condit. Carlos Condit doesn't do that to people. Our best hope is like a sensational three-round scrap, and that gets less likely as these guys get older. Yeah, I agree. So I'll start with Carlos Condit. Carlos Condit, he's he's 36 years old, but he's even older than that. He's got a lot of, you know, damage, not a lot of tread left on those tires. He's got one win in his last six appearances. To his credit, he lost to studs. I mean, of the five-fight losing streak, those fights were to Robbie Lawler in a fight that many people thought he should have won. That was for the title. Damian Maia. Neil Magny, Alex Oliveira, and Michael Chiesa. I mean, those guys are studs. Uh, he he fights from both stances, but it has been pointed out recently that he's been kind of changing it up and focusing more on the southpaw stance. He's still pretty good. You know, the big thing about Carlos Khan has always been his, his ability to move. He's still pretty good light on his feet. He still has good output. Still has some decent pop on his strikes. He dropped Court McGee in his last fight. He fights from two ranges. It, it was, I should say he's good at fighting from two ranges on the feet. Though he keeps his chin high, he kind of pulls his punches. But when he's on the outside, he can use a lot of kicks in that long in his long limbs. And he has a you know he has a pretty good kick to the body still to this day. And then when he gets inside, it's it's all hooks from the inside. He likes to you know load up, land a big punch. He kind of throws that looping hook. Think about the, the knockout of Dan Hardy, which is probably his most famous knockout. He also does well to kind of stand the outside with the kick and then suddenly slide into that range. So you kind of really don't know where he's coming from. I'll give him credit. He still has a chin. Like, even though we're talking about the durability should be there, he hasn't been knocked out by strikes. He's a weak offensive wrestler. 
he is a terrible defensive wrestler. If he gets on top, he has some good ground and pound, and he has a submission threat off his back. I mean, he recently he almost submitted Michael Chiesa, even though he got absolutely dominated that fight. He almost submitted him early. So there's some things I do like about Carlos Condit. Now, moving to Matt Brown, 40 years old, also take a lot of damage. And besides his age, Matt Brown always always had the damage to take punches and 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 get beat up. Uh, if he was 30 years old, he'd have a lot of damage on him. He was never a great athlete, but just this like made up for it by just being pure violent dude. Uh, still to this day, he marches forward, has good power, almost knocked out. Uh, oh, I shouldn't say almost knocked out, but hurt Miguel Baeza in that fight. He sits on his punches. If he gets in close, he loves to land elbows and slice you up. Or you know, think about his KO of Diego Sanchez, which wasn't that long ago. It was one of the most violent KOs ever. He has a lot of technical issues. He keeps his chin high, where it seems like every fight that goes on is getting higher and higher. He doesn't check leg kicks. He's always been hurt to the body. That's always been the, the area of weakness for him. He's so physically strong, though. Like he, If he can get you in the clinch, he's going to make it dirty. He's going to beat you up there. He can, he will sneak in a takedown. He has some nice trips. He's got a good body lock takedown from close. He's hard to take down himself. But ch- chin is very questionable at this point. Uh, he was rocked several times in the last outing against Miguel Baeza before he was put out. If he gets on top, though, he can get some good strong ground and pound. Um, both these guys are really past their prime. I, I really wish both guys would retire. But I'm taking Kyle's content in this one for two reasons. One, he has lost to the better competition. But two... From a technical sense, Brown has always been hurt to the body. Connett loves throwing kick to the body. I think he lands that kick to the body and, and folds Matt Brown. So I'll give me Carlos Connett by second round TKO from the body kick. And I'm really confident. I'm putting his – I said the easiest pick of the fight uh, – pick of the night was Ramazan Amiv, but that is not my lock. I am locking Carlos Connett in as, as winning. That's my lock of the night. Outstanding. Well, we have a little dissension then. Uh, I've, I've gone back and forth ab- about this one a lot. You're right in that uh, Condit's recent uh, competition. I mean, it's been it's not been a complete murderer's row, but it's been a tough row for a guy that was going further and further into a losing streak. But I'm actually uh, encouraged on Brown's behalf by seeing Baeza's next fight. I now look at the Brown versus Baeza fight as more of a referendum on how good Baeza is than uh, how shopworn Matt Brown might be, even though, you know, Brown definitely uh, is is in the final act of his career. I look at how Baeza put Brown away, and I don't see things that Carlos Condit can do or, or, is, or is known to do. Uh, Brown's, you know, his his biggest liabilities, uh, you know, he, he's always been susceptible to getting submitted. Uh, he's always been susceptible to the body shot. I mean, when your liver has filtered out as much heroin as as his has, you know, it, it's going to have a target on it. You know, you kick that and some some horrible stuff goes flowing, flowing through your system, I guess. Uh, whereas I think Carlos Condit is extremely shop worn on the feet. And on the ground, he's still dangerous. He's always been one of the more dangerous, opportunistic 
just venomous offensive submission threats on the ground. But, you know, we, we've seen him just getting more and more just dominated on the ground. He certainly could land, you know, the body's out of death, just hit Brown on that button and, and it's all over. But I'm going to pick against it. Uh, I think Brown will be able to make the fight happen at his range most of the time. Uh, he could certainly get tagged to the head, but I don't think it'll be enough uh, to put him down. Uh, give me Brown by decision in a sad yet enjoyable fight. And that brings us to the main event. Max Holloway versus Calvin Cater in a high-stakes contender matchup. Holloway is 21-6 and six in his professional mixed martial arts career. 17-6 and six since joining the UFC as, I believe, a teenager. He may have been 20. He may have been just 19. But in basically his entire career has taken place under the octagon lights. He is, of course, the former... Uh, featherweight champion, defended that title five times before losing to Alexander Volkanovsky, then losing once again in the rematch, though both fights were quite competitive. He'll be taking on the unlikely contender who really has just come out of nowhere in the last few years to become an undeniable force in the division. Calvin Cater is 32 years old. The Massachusetts native is 22-4. and four. Six and two since joining the UFC back in 2017. Uh, Holloway, a slight favorite in this one, sitting around minus 145. Cater, you can get around plus 135. Keith, what will it take for you to want to see Max Holloway fight Alexander Volkanovsky a third time? Oh, God. I, he's got to go on a crazy winning streak. He's got to win like four or five in a row to me. I, I, I think we've talked about this past. Like, I'm surprised he didn't go up to 155. Like, it just seems like the right move. I don't get. Yeah, this is a fantastic fight. Like, I'm very excited for that. But from a career like projection, like it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Max Holloway's guy who's gone up to 155 before, uh, flirted with you know winning two titles. He was actually booked to fight for the title at one point against you know Habib Nurmagomedov. I just I don't get why he's staying at 145. I know he thinks he won the last fight of Volkanovski, and a lot of people agree with him. I actually scored it for him, um, but I'm okay with the Volkanovski scorecard there. I, I don't get it. He should move up to 155. You've made the point before. You've mentioned it a, a few times that you saw Calvin Cater all you know on his way up and had kind of pigeonholed him as okay, you know he's he's a pretty good fighter, but he's not some future UFC contender. He, he's kind of a he's kind of a case in favor of joining the UFC after 20 fights instead of six, isn't he? He got a chance to kind of build his craft under lower lights. Yeah, another thing that I pointed out is that he became a full-time fighter. He's at that strong argument for that. I've made some really good predictions in, in my time. Obviously, my best one was that John Jones would be extremely successful in the UFC. Calvin Cater was my worst prediction. Like I did not see him being this good. I I I will trust you to give more of the X's and O's breakdown of these two guys. The interesting dynamic for me in Holloway versus Cater is that both guys at their best are guys that come on in the second 
and third rounds in Holloway's case, sometimes in the fourth and fifth, as the fight goes on, uh, you know, Cater seem he's not a slow starter per se. He's not a slow starter. Like, you know, he's not like a Donald Cerrone, maybe more of a John Jones slow starter where he'll take his time, not throw a whole lot of volume while he's kind of feeling out the range, uh, and, and the rhythm. And then he'll start making his adjustments and really start putting it on people. Whereas Holloway, to me, is just kind of like a snowball that starts to roll downhill. I mean, I think Jose Aldo won the first round of both of their fights. And by the end of the third round of those fights, Aldo was roadkill. Just Holloway, speaking of finding the rhythm, once he starts getting into his thing where he starts throwing five, six, seven strike combinations, walking forward, switching stances as he goes, like using kicks to, to switch stance. I mean, it, it's like a bulldozer. I kind of want to, I'm excited most in this fight to see who, you know, whose strength is stronger in, in that regard, who makes the better adjustments to the other guy, uh, you know, and who has, assuming this fight is still going at the end of the third round, who has the, the momentum going there. That's what I'm most excited to see. The thing I'm second most excited to see is just how Max Holloway looks. Uh, he's, you know, got 23 fights in the UFC. He's got to be one of the younger guys ever to get that many fights in the UFC. But he's had some wars, and he's taken some shellackings. I mean, neither of the Volkanovski fights were, but they were both five-round fights that had a lot of volume, and both guys took a lot of hits. The Poirier fight was a beatdown and he's a guy who you know even in his mid-20s was having increasing difficulty making the weight limit that never does good things for your chin or your stamina it's interesting to me that even though he's 29 and cater is going to turn 33 in march like cater's almost four full years older holloway feels like the one that more needs to prove that he's not damaged goods and that he's not in decline cater is the slight underdog here but I think I'm I'm going with Cater. Give give me Calvin Cater to you know to to beat Max Holloway. I am excited to see Cater in the the fourth and fifth round of a fight. I think, and I may look completely foolish for saying this, but I I think Holloway may be in that like Hall of Fame of the oldest fighters under thirty. You know. That, that the sport ha has ever seen. I think he he is used to being able to dig deep, and he he may not have quite as deep a well to go to in, in this fight. Uh, give me Cater in this fight, and give me Cater by winning like the first, fourth, and fifth rounds. Wow, I I, I didn't expect that, um, man. So you're coming out strong. I think it's the co-main event and main event you're taking upsets. Uh, I'll start with Max. I'm going to start like a broken record because I'm going to copy a lot of things you said. Uh, he's a pressure striker with insane volume, but like the first part of my notes is everything you were saying. He's a bit of a slow starter who, like you said, as a snowball, he builds as the fight goes on, uh, picking up the rounds. This is good and bad. It's good because he tears it up late. He tears it up when his opponent is tiring. When he sees him tiring, he's, you know, they're going down, he's going up. Um, really crushes their souls. But it's bad because he gives away early rounds. He also has showed a lack of urgency. Uh, for example, he seemed to not know in the first fight to Volkanovski that he was losing. 
Now, to his credit, in the second Volkanovski fight, he came out a much stronger and actually banked early rounds. Uh, the thing I, there's so many things about technically I like about Max Holloway. When I think of the best Max, like when we've seen the best version, he can, as you mentioned, he can fight from both stances, switch mid range. Other than probably Israel Asanya, nobody else in MMA is as good to be able to fight. Like he's, I don't know, is he better at orthodox or southpaw? Like I don't know. Like he's great at both of them. Uh, he can also fight from every range. He can fight all the way out. He can fight in the mid-range. He can fight in the pocket. He just touches and then unloads when the opening is there. His straight right is so accurate. He throws, as you mentioned, he, six, seven, eight punch combinations. He dropped Volkanovski with his perfect uppercut left hook combination. He will attack the body. Some of the negatives are that he stands up a little too tall. Uh, he also, and this is the thing that really jumped out to me, after the first fight, and what I really brought into my breakdown of Volkanovski fight the second time, is feints were bothering Holloway. Volkanovski was freezing Holloway with feints. Holloway has good kicks, though he does not use them enough. He thinks more of a, a boxer, which is a negative considering going against Calvin Cato. We saw Moicano have so much success with the leg kicks. Jeremy Stevens was having success with the leg kicks against Calvin Cater early in that fight. Holloway has some sting on his punches, but like we were just saying um, about Santiago Ponzinibbio, like he's more of a stick than a hammer. Uh, mm -hmm. He doesn't have one punch fight any power. He's gonna, Even more so than Ponzinibbio. Yeah, yeah, even yeah. more so. He just keep getting hit in the head with a stick going over, and you're going to be damaged goods after 25 minutes. Uh, he has... Great takedown defense. They doesn't get talked about enough how great his takedown defense is. Like, it's up there with Jose Aldo, how good it is. And even if you get in on him, like, he'll jump on, a, on like, a neck attack. Go back to, like, when he lost to Dustin Poirier. Dustin Poirier might have got saved. I don't know what round it was, but he ended the round in a deep anaconda. Like, he might have been saved by it. Uh, cardio is off the charts. He can go hard for 25 minutes. Even, like, the fights that he lost, like, to Volkanovski, he didn't seem tired after the 25 minutes. He just has so much heart. He just can battle through... Beatings, beatings from Poirier, beatings from Volkanovski. He just kept going going forward. Though he's so young, as you mentioned, he's taken so much damage, which is obviously concerning. And then you could think about like a couple of years ago when he had that weird interview with Michael Bisman. We still don't know what the heck that was about. Um, who knows? Like that, I'm, that still bothers me all these years later. But with Calvin Cater, he is so technically sound. He can also switch stances, but, he, but for him, he does prefer the orthodox stance. Has great footwork. Uh, I do like how often he will throw hard hooks. Like he'll he'll switch the southpaw and then he'll throw a hard hook off it. Like trying to attack before you in your head see that he switched stance or the opponent says saying, "Okay, he's in the orthodox." Oh, now he's in the southpaw and he'll attack. Um, when I was kind of coaching uh, fighters, young fighters in MMA in, in the boxing, that's like one thing I always like to stress. Like as soon as you switch stance, I want you to attack to kind of like get them to have to rethink while they're thinking you're already hitting. I love that about Calvin Cater. He also fights long. He knows how to fight long between his footwork and his long length, uh, his arms. Uh, he keeps does a good job of keeping his opponents at the end of his punches. He has such great fluidity in his punches. He just kind of flows. Good hands being some, some, some really good snap. I love how calm he is. And, and going back, I remember the Ricardo Lamas fight, how in the middle of the fight he seemed so relaxed. His, his corner, like Greg Rebella was in his corner. Obviously, Tyson Chardier was in his corner. They were calling out combinations, and, and 
Caden was just throwing exactly what they were saying because he was so calm in those moments. Uh, he stays super tight. All his punches come straight down the pipe. I got an incredible jab. One of the best jabs I've ever made. The only person who might have a better jab than him is his teammate, Rob Font, who we saw. Uh, he uses feints to set up his shots, which gives me so much hope because that's how Velkonowski had a lot of success against Max Holloway. Just absolute slick combinations that he throws. He has his step back uppercut, which is extremely dangerous, but because it's such a rare strike you don't see, it lands and it hurts. Uh, he will target the power, and he has good power. I was thinking about this. Um, I mean, he landed shots against Jeremy Steve. Like, I don't think we talk about. Let me back up. I don't think we talk about how good Calvin Cade's power is because I've. He was landing shots in Jeremy Stevens and suddenly turned Jeremy Stevens into a wrestler, which when has that ever happened? I mean, he landed shots in Dan Ike and suddenly Dan Ike was pulling guard. Uh, I mean, his step-in elbow absolutely destroyed Jeremy Stevens. Mm-hmm. He also has this flying switch knee that he uses to close distance, which is going to land sometime, but he throws it because like it might land, but he uses it more just to get into the to the range. Uh because of his boxing style, he's very heavy on his front foot, which was destroyed by Hunter Moicano. Was also uh, issues with Jeremy Stevens. He also doesn't like like onslaught pressure. Uh, go back to the Chris Fishkel. Chris Fishkel had like it was very short, but very early success, and even like one point like caught Kata with a really good shot early on in that fight. Uh, as you mentioned. He's also a slow starter, similar to Holloway kind of builds. One of the guys I was talking to Tyson Jardia, he was saying that he like reads and then like he says like downloads. He downloads what you're doing, kind of setting traps, which the you know, something we'd say about Anderson Silva. Now I'm not saying Calvin Cater is Anderson Silva, so um but he can be too patient. I mean you think about the Zabit Magomed Sheripov fight, he he was giving away rounds, something similar to Max Holloway does. Instead of looking to win rounds, um, he also, in his recent fights, he had his nose bloody up by Jeremy Stevens and Dean Ege. They both actually broke his nose in both those fights. So he bro- had his nose broken in two fights in a row. Uh, he's a weak defensive wrestler, but when he has been taken down, he's hard to hold down. Though I doubt Max Holloway, though he probably should, I, Max Holloway will go for takedown. Now, for prediction, as I talked about earlier, I and I know I'm rambling for a long time just because I, I I love the X and O's of these fights because these are these are two guys that I just love breaking down their styles. I I don't like the fight for Max Holloway's projection win or lose, but I absolutely love the fight as a fan's point. Uh, as you mentioned, both guys are slow starters, which makes me think that the opening round could be so big. Uh, I wonder if either guy is willing to give that away. I I, I don't think they will. I was thinking about this. Other than Dustin Poirier, has Max and, and and maybe he might even have more power than Dustin Poirier. Has Max Holloway faced someone who hits as hard as Calvin Cater since maybe Conor McGregor? Jose Aldo. Uh, I think. I don't know. I think Cater might hit more. How? I, I don't know. They, 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 they I mean, be but, in yeah. in a row, he faced like Pettis, Aldo, Aldo, Ortega, and Poirier. Okay, like, so I all think those guys hits, are hard hitters. Yeah. Oh, so I think he hits way harder than Ortega. I know Ortega get that like Frankie Edgar knockout, but and 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 uh, Andy Pettis, I think he hits way harder than. 
but but, but well, we go down a sidetrack. I was literally there's not even my notes. I just thought of this uh, off the top of my head. Um, so Cater's going to have to open up a lot more than he did against Megan Michelle. He's going to want to hang with Holloway because we know Holloway's going to the output's going to be there. I don't think Cater has to match Holloway's output, but he's got to stay somewhat in pace with him. He can't be outpaced by 50%, 60%. Like, he's got to be within, like, a 10%, just pure output. I, I've been accused of being anti-Homer by never <laughs> picking the local guy. I've been accused of that so many times. For once, I'm going to be the Homer. Stand up, New England. I think he, <laughs> as long as he has the confidence to let his hands go, I think he can get the win. I'm going to go cater by split decision in my fight of the night pick. There you go. Both of us going with the slight upset and Calvin cater, the Boston finisher, not to finish, but to definitely take an unprecedented step forward in the very crowded featherweight title picture. There you have it. The comprehensive preview for UFC on ABC one Holloway versus cater. For a quick rundown of the picks in the opening fight of the night, Jacob Kilburn versus Austin Lingo. Uh, both Keith and I have Lingo by first round knockout. Sarah Morris versus Vanessa Mello. Both of us have Morris by decision. David Zavada versus Ramazan Ameev. Keith has Ameev by decision. Ben has Ameev by third round submission. Carlos Felipe versus Justin Taffa. Keith has Taffa by round one knockout. Ben has Felipe by terrible decision. Yanam Wu versus Jocelyn Edwards. Ben has Edwards by round two knockout. Keith has Edwards by round one knockout. So both of us calling for a successful debut for the Panamanian. At 185, Phil Hawes versus Nasruddin Imavov. Both of us have Hawes by round one knockout. On to the main card, Punahele Soriano versus Dusko Todorovic. Both of us have Todorovic by decision. Joaquin Buckley versus Alessio DeKirico. Both Keith and I have Buckley by decision. Santiago Ponzinibbio returning after two years on the shelf against Jingliang Li. Ben has Ponzinibbio by decision. Keith has Ponzinibbio by round three knockout. In the co-main event, Carlos Condit versus Matt Brown. Keith has Condit by round two knockout. Ben has Brown by decision. And in the main event, both Keith and I favor Calvin Cater to beat Max Holloway by decision. Be sure to check out the Sherdog Radio Network and the Loudmouth MMA Podcast Network uh, for the recap show shortly after the event. Thanks for listening and enjoy the fights.